the fourth Friday of the month, and that means it's time for Literary Ashland. I'm Michael Neiman. And I'm Ed Battistella. And we have some announcements, don't we? We do. The um, Willamette Writers, Southern Oregon Willamette Writers, will resume meeting on the first Saturday um, of September. Um, I, we don't quite know what they're up no, to. No, I, but... I checked the website and there was no specific program listed. And if you're going to be in Florida, September 6th through 9th is the annual BoucherCon, the World Mystery Convention. In Tampa, right? In Tampa, I believe, mm -hmm. right? Uh, Amira McKenzie, Literary Libations, What to Drink with What You Read, uh, launches her book uh, at Bloomsbury Books on September 6th from 7 to 8 p.m., or at Irving Roberts Winery at September, on September 4th from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. So if you are looking for uh, an appropriate wine or other drink to accompany your book, this may be the book launch for you. Also at uh, Bloomsbury on September 13th, uh, Carol T. Beers will read from her Pepper Cane Mysteries. And this just in, uh, Blackstone Publishing will have their warehouse sale and family fair on October 6th. Okay. So is there a time? Uh, it looks like it's all day. Okay. All right. Sounds, 10 to 4. Sounds good. All so, right. All right. Well, today's guest is our good friend Todd Davies, the author of the Arcadia series, now up to book four with her recently released Report to Megalopolis. Um, Todd is also the editor and publisher of Exterminating Angel Press and the author of two cooking memoirs, Jam Today, A Diary of Cooking with What You've Got, and Jam Today 2, T-O-O, The Revolution Will Not Be Catered. So welcome, Todd. Hey, welcome. Ed. Hi, Michael. It's, it's nice always, to have you back. It's yeah. always great to come back. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Yeah, and congratulations on Report to Megalopolis. Mm -hmm. it's, it's getting some great uh, notices in Kirkus and now Publishers Weekly. And I know, and you know what? It's the first book that any Exterminating Angel Press book has ever not gotten a snarky review from Kirkus. Mm. I mean, let me tell you, that that's a milestone. <laughs> they must be getting old. <laughs> I guess so. That's wonderful. Well, can you give our, our, our listeners a, a quick orientation to the, the world you've sort of created in these four books? I know we've got Snotty Saves the Day, Lily the Silent, The Lizard Princess, and now Report to Megalopolis. What's the... The big picture here. Well, it's really about a very small world. Um, it, it's a world where there's a very small land, which is surrounded by an enormous technocratic, power-hungry, and environmentally destructive empire. And the small land is trying to preserve its independence and trying to preserve its values and move those values into the future. And that land was actually created from a bit of the enormous empire by, in the first book, someone discovering who they really are. Um, just in a flash, it prepared the world. The second book is the huge environmental destruction that happens to the outside world and how that affects the little world. Um, the third book is the the queen of that world 
when she's a when she when she's what we call the lizard princess has to go into the huge imperial imperial world surrounding and find out what it actually is going to mean to take charge of her own world and try and protect mm-hmm. it and try and make it move forward. And this book is told by what was traditionally my villain, although I came to, I came to <laughs> feel so much more compassion for him by the eighth draft, um, where he is reporting to Megalopolis. He, he's from Arcadia and he despises the values of Arcadia because they don't allow for a genius leaders like himself, white male genius leaders, to be white male genius leaders. They have sort of different values than that. So he is trying to, um, he's, in, he's created a God man. Um, it, it, this is my homage to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. He's created a God man and they invade Arcadia. Um, the first part of the book is his report to Megalopolis while he's waiting to see what happens in council with his God man and the, the council. And then when the inevitable quarrel happens, the rest is about their invasion of Arcadia and the 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 end the end result of that. And I should point out that you can read these in any order. You don't need to read. You don't need to start with uh, "Snotty Saves the Day." Yeah, I really um, I really think of it as sort of the way that you take in any kind of information in in life. You hear a story about somebody, mm-hmm. you hear another story, you find about the middle story. You know them when they're married to this person, but then you find out about the first marriage, and it's. I always find that fascinating. Mm. I never thought of that particular analogy, but yeah, that's yeah. I loved the Edward Eager children's books when I was a kid, where they sort of interacted and characters would suddenly appear in another book, and you'd realize it was a scene from an earlier book, but it's being looked at from the plot in another mm. book, and then they keep going. I loved that. Mm. So I kind of do that all the time yeah, because I love good. it. Yeah. It's a so, good. It's a good sort of writer trick to to know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I just started Snotty Saves the Day. So you did, Michael. I did, and so you want to trade? I want one of your books. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a fun it's a fun story. I can I can tell. I'm I'm about twenty percent in. That's what my reader tells me, and so he's just he's just arrived at this newfangled land and uh, is kind of like, what is this? And and, a, and you know the footnotes. By the physicist, by the Arcadian mm-hmm. physicist, she's the ghost in my fi- this book. Oh, okay. She's the ghost that keeps appearing to mm-hmm. to my narrator. Okay, very cool. All right, I'm not going to ask any more about Snotty and whether he makes appearances and further um, uh, volume. You'll be surprised. You'll be surprised about, at the end. Anyways, yeah. yeah, so that's fine. Uh, but you already made uh, reference to Mary Shelley uh, and Frankenstein. And so the subtitle of the new book is The Postmodern Prometheus. And so was that on your mind as you were writing Asper Grayling's story? It wasn't in the first few drafts. The mm. first few drafts were just sort of, they were a little snarky. I mean, they were, it was sort of meant to be a card, <laughs> cardboard villain describing Arcadia and, and from his point of view. But the more I got into it, the more his suffering came up for me. Um, mm-hmm. He was suffering because he was being snarky. And, and I started, and I was rereading Frankenstein, and I realized I was writing um, a, a response, a, a descendant of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Because what happened when Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein has been playing out for the last 200 years. This is the 200th year anniversary mm-hmm. of her publication of her book. It's been playing out for the last 200 years, and we're watching the end game of it, in yeah. fact. And so... And the book that I was writing, that I am writing, in fact, all the Arcadia books are about that endgame. They're about how far can we actually go 
not partnering, trying to dominate everything, Mm -hmm. not partnering with nature, not partnering men with women, not partnering with people who are different than us. How far can we go before that ends badly? Mm -hmm. And these books are like my way of investigating that and seeing what might come out of that, what might evolve into a different perspective. Yeah. Uh, this character, Asper Graylings, also reminds me of the architect in The Fountainhead. Sort of the, the genius uh, completely ignored or otherwise not uh, recognized by his own people. That's a good call. That's a good call. He's definitely an, an Ayn Rand sort of a hero. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have to say that um, whose voice I was hearing an awful lot in my head was Richard Dawkins as well. Mm. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. sure. Okay. And, and I know you gave a talk, a, a great talk, a while back about uh, Mary Shelley and the two hundredth two hundredth anniversary of Frankenstein, and that seems to have informed the evolution of this book. Definitely. Um, and I wondered what other the, we've got the the Ayn Rand, um, the Mary Shelley. Um, it, it seems like there must be some other, a Nietzsche seems to be kind of hovering in the background. <laughs> uh, are there other things that you could sort of call out that uh, readers would be likely to spot or, or well, miss? <laughs> there are. Um, I mean, if you, there are so many, there are so many things that I read for this. Does anybody know Lewis Mumford? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Lewis Mumford, I reread him for every single time when I'm writing one of these Arcadia books. Um mm-hmm. Technics and society, but obviously his great work, The City and History, yeah. is the most important one for me. Um, Fernand Braudel's Civilization mm-hmm. and Capitalism, okay, the I three volumes, that. I reread those too. Oh, why all three? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's my idea of a good time, you know? Yeah, I mean, I no. really, that's why I have to live out in the country so that nobody can see what I'm doing. I, I like the middle one about everyday life. Or was it the first one? I all, forget all of them. One, yeah. All of them are essentially about mm-hmm. everyday life and how essentially yeah. it gets plundered mm-hmm. in, in order yeah. to provide the structure, the superstructure for capitalism, which mm-hmm. is what he, this is what Aspen Grayling's doing. He's trying mm-hmm. to go back to his little land and plunder it for his greater glory. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't end well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's well. It, let's see. There are. Um, I guess you sort of talk about these as um, modern day fairy tales, and um, it, it seems to me that a lot of our, a lot of younger people may sort of know their fairy tales from uh, from Disney movies or sanitized. So, uh, san- the sort of sanitized. Um, I don't want to say. Do we know the word eunuch? Do we know the word castrated out there? Yeah, exactly. And Mm -hmm. so these seem to be much more in the spirit of the original grim type fairy tales where they're kind of cautionary tales about society and people and hubris. Is that is that part of what you're? Oh, it's hugely doing part here? of it. Yeah. I mean, as, as C.S. Lewis once said, "Someday you will be old enough for fairy tales." I mean, mm. they are what what my physicist who footnotes the first books, Naughty Saves the Day, and she appears as a ghost all the way through this book. What she has discovered and what she studies is that fairy tales hold all of the biological secrets of humankind, um, and it's a big it's a big point of conflict between her and my villain because he's like, these are children's stories. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. It's not something you should be studying. And I have this problem all the time. I have got to say, people are always saying, oh, I love the cookbooks, but you know, I don't read fantasy. Fantasy is for children. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, 
um, you know, you haven't been reading recent fantasy and you actually haven't been reading a a long, long history of fantasy going back to Frankenstein, in Mm -hmm. fact, Mm -hmm. which is not a story for children. Not at all. No, yeah, exactly. This is so... Uh, it's interesting to get that. So you've got really a, a couple of different audiences going on, and they may not. Well, they I may not of, meet in the middle. I kind of hope it's always the same audience, but it, and I really, really would love to have as many young people reading these as possible because it's the audience that is thinking. All the reason that they read is why am I here? What am I doing? What should we all be doing? What should I do to contribute? All of those questions, which are the reason why I started reading at the earliest possible age. And I have to say that dystopian uh, type stories are particularly popular with uh, students of all ages. And I really, I mean, I really don't think that this is a dystopian story. This is kind of what uh, Walida Amarisha has called uh, visionary fiction, Mm -hmm. which I think is a wonderful name because I was struggling to figure out what it was I was writing. But visionary fiction which there are a lot of good books out there of visionary mm-hmm. fiction. Ursula K. Le Guin writes visionary fiction. Mm-hmm. Essentially, what it means is you are trying to envision a different way of being. Because the story, if you keep telling a story to yourself over and over again about how the strong always win, the weak mm-hmm. always lose, the strong should be on top, the weak should be on the bottom, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's all you're going to see. That's the world you're going to get. And all of, all of the Arcadia books are about, first of all, Snotty is about a world that actually gets formed by a story, by a change in the story, as you'll see when you get to the end, mm-hmm. Michael. And the rest of it is about them struggling to come up with a new story that will be strong enough to protect them from the corruption that's outside of them. Okay. But well, from just the quick summary that you just gave us of number four, it does sound actually rather dystopian in the sense of the megalomaniac who does Megalopolis's bidding, so to speak. and That's probably their sports team. <laughs> And and ultimately the battle. Uh, so why why is that not dystopian in your mind? Well, remember the the first part of the book is also he's writing a report mm-hmm. about what Arcadian values are and what happens in Arcadia and what the Arcadian history is, what the Arcadian family structure is, what the Arcadian okay. all of that gets put against that, and then he mm-hmm. goes to try to destroy it and. Mm-hmm. Um, other things happen. Okay. They don't just roll over okay. it. Other things happen. And the the characters that kept talking to me who I did not... I mean, when I started this, I knew I was going to do three books. I did not know I was going to do four. And now I'm writing, writing the fifth one oh, because wow. the two characters that kept speaking to me were the two young women mm-hmm. um, of Arcadia. And they kept saying, the way only way we're going to go forward with this is by evolving rather than revolting. So that's what the next book's going to be about. Okay. And, and I was going to... Oh, go ahead. In, in case you are just tuning in, you are listening to Literary Ashland right here on KSKQ in Ashland, Oregon. Our guest today is Todd Davis, and we're discussing the fourth uh, book, The Report to Megalopolis, in her Arcadia series. Yeah, and you know, listening to you sort of describe the visionary fiction idea, um, it... it makes me want to ask, would it be fair to sort of think, I, I had been kind of thinking of this as a, something that starts out dystopian and ends well, but I think the the piece that you just sort of brought out for me is the way that it, it, it ends well because of the power of narrative rather than the sort of 
battle of good over evil kind of thing. Is that is that sort of the essence of visionary fiction, or is there a different? I think that visionary fiction is is different from utopian fiction mm -hmm. in that utopian fiction and utopias are looking for a perfect world. And once you have a perfect world, you have a dead world. There is no such thing as life with perfection. So there is no such thing with life with a utopia. But there is a better life than one has now. There is There are possibilities that we haven't explored. And I think visionary fiction is about exploring those. Now, you're always going to have to explore through suffering. You're going to explore through mistakes. There isn't going to be just a happy ending all the time. Just a happy ending all the time, I think, actually helps with dystopian fiction because then it has something to fight against. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I used to hear the term speculative fiction, and this sounds like a sort of similar... You know, I think it is. Speculative fiction, though, I mean, I think that that also was a lot about technology. It was science fiction in a tuxedo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Penguin science fiction. Yeah. So, um, uh, and and the thing is, is that there's a lot of science fiction, and like Ray Bradbury, for mm -hmm. example, writes visionary fiction. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, C.S. Lewis writes visionary fiction. I mean, really, all of the Lord of the Rings is visionary fiction, even though that ends in a quite a bittersweet way, but it's a very human way, the way it ends. Mm. That's what I'm really interested in. What I'm really interested in is preserving humanity and coming up with different ways to be human and, and hearing other people's points of view about that. I mean, when people say things, I saw this on Twitter yesterday, it drove me crazy. <laughs> somebody, somebody wrote, is it possible to be human in a cyberborg as we are moving toward a cyber, a cyberborg um, world? And I'm like, well, who's... Who's looking at it and saying a to be a cyber is better? Are you kidding? You're a human being and you're saying, oh, well, it might be better for us not to be human. It might be better for us to be cyborgs. Yeah, well, you know what that is. That's terror of death. That's terror of death. That's terror of suffering. That's terror of everything that, unfortunately, joy comes from because you can't have joy without sorrow. You can't have life without death. I mean, I hate to break this too those people, but that's the way it goes. Otherwise, I mean, dystopia is another flip side of utopia. It's another frozen thing. It may not actually be a flip side. What do you think it is? Uh, the same. Because <laughs> <laughs> right. when it ends in total disaster, well, then where, then, okay, what do we do now? Thanks. But it's, it's the, it's, it strikes me as this relentless search for perfection and uh, the technological fix to almost everything. That's I was right, just right. thinking about uh, William Gibson's novel Neuromancer way back mm -hmm. when, you know, when yeah, right. you have you have this first appearance of artificial intelligences and and the idea of uh, you know plugging a chip into your brain and suddenly acquiring a new language and, and those kinds of ideas. And Whoopee. And Whoopee. those are all these these attempts at perfection. Well, yeah, that just would my be, Google glasses. <laughs> that would be a great thing. You know, as long as, you know what, I always think, I, you know, I live out in a valley with a mm -hmm. Tibetan Buddhist temple, right? And um, at one point, some, one, of the, one of the Tibetan Buddhists out there told me that a Tibetan Buddhist monk came out and made it rain. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, that's great. You know, cool. Congratulations. But it would have been much better if he could have made it so you guys all got along, because at that point they were all fighting. They're not <laughs> could, now, by could, the way. Can we get the monk over here? <laughs> to... and, but he said, the guy said... 
oh my God, that's what he said. He said, this is easy, but to get humans to get along, that's mm-hmm. difficult. Yeah. Now, I mean, and that, well, that's one of our, I noticed that we're supposedly going to colonize the moon again. I hear that that's <laughs> all over the place. That's always a sign that things are going to hell in a handbasket. They always immediately start talking about how we are going to colonize something in outer space and yeah. everything's going to be fine then when we live on a rock. Thank you. No, I, but that's, of course, the trope, right? It's, we screw up this planet, but we get to go somewhere else. There's a zillion movies and TV series based on that principle. Yeah. I, th- I think Alien is one of them. Um, so it, it occurs to me, though, that um, Aspirin Grayling may think he's creating a utopia. He does. Right? So he's, I mean, so the idea that they're kind of flip sides... Uh, as long as as long as I'm in control, as it's long all going to be as long fine. As, I, as long as I'm running it, it's going to be a utopia. It's all going to be fine. My dear husband did some maps for the for the final book. I don't think you've seen them yet because they not they weren't in the galleys. But um, one of the maps is Aspirin Grayling has done a picture of what the roads in Arcadia are going to look like once they're through with them, and they're all straight freeways. Mm-hmm. Whereas the roads in Arcadia are. They started out as deer tracks, and then the hikers took them, and then the next thing, and so they're all very organic. But once you try to impose that kind of control on things to make it perfect and to make it, if only this happened, it would be better, you're really running into trouble. And by the way, you run into trouble when you're writing like that, too. Mm-hmm. Sounds like state highways versus federal highways. But but I want to sort of turn to uh, Aspirin Grayling's son, um, Pavo um, Vale. Okay, good. Well, that's what I was saying in my head, but I've never actually said it out loud. So, Pavo Vale is the Frankenstein's monster, um, and he's also um, thoroughly misogynistic. So, it, that seems to also be um, something that evolved as you were working through the book and is maybe informed by the Me Too movement and, and other... Well, actually, no, it predates. It predates the Me Too movement. And there's a tattoo. We, we have a, an, an icon that Mike Madrid, who designs all of the books, uh, did of Lily the Silent, um, who's the, who was the first queen of Arcadia, mm-hmm. with a rose over her mouth that says resist. That's right. And that That's was right. years before the resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, the struggle, because the first book is about struggling to realize that your own human values and what you really value is not exactly the same as what you have to do in order to be successful in a technocratic, violent society. Yeah, I had forgotten the rose tattoo in the. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not. It, it's not. It's definitely on side with the Me Too movement, and definitely on side with the Times Up movement. But that's because I have always been about the Me Too movement and the Times Up movement. Yeah. And and you did you mentioned some of the the maps and the artwork so I want to make sure that we get a chance to call those out a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Mike Madrid's work and and the work that uh, Alex has done for the the maps? Well, Mike Madrid's incredible. I mean, he designs all of the Exterminating Angel Press books as well as having written all the books that we publish about comic books, including the Supergirls, which is our most popular book, um, and is taught everywhere. Which reminds me, I got to send one to an academic in Canada. He's teaching it this year. So, um, but he's also incredibly talented in terms of design. And he wanted to design the Arcadia books after the first book, which was um, beautifully illustrated by um, Gary Zabley. So then this book, he used he used publicly available art. So he didn't really want a big credit. He just wanted design by the The pictures are actually public domain 
pictures that he chose for where he put them. For example, the Luna cards, which are oh, right. the tarot cards of, mm-hmm. of Arcadia. He he just started designing those one day and sent them to me. And the next thing I knew, I was writing about the Luna mm-hmm. in, in the book. Um, no, I'm really lucky to have him. He's a, he's a collaborator whose visuals really push me. Oh, and, and, and then, of course, and then my dear husband did the maps. Don't, don't want to leave him out. Yeah, yeah. But that was, that, was pretty, that was pretty simple. I mean, he just, he said, what do you want? And I said, here, do this. And then he did. And then we went back. And sort of freehand it. maps. Yep. Freehand. Well, because it's as if Aspirin Grayling no. did them. So Yeah. Okay. So, but I mean, creating a map out of nothing is still a challenge. Well, he's I mean, pretty it, clever, I have you, to say. Out of nothing is not quite correct because yeah. there's your book, right? So that's the start. Yeah. That's right. It's, still, you have to visualize that. Yeah, well, yeah. he's a visual guy being okay. a filmmaker, you know? Okay, excellent, yeah. So you mentioned that you had never expected there to be more than three. Now the fourth one is out, and you are working on the fifth. Can you tell us a little bit more about the fifth one? Well, the fifth one is going to be, and it comes, it keeps coming. I can hear them talking to me all the time, and I'm just carrying a book around and writing it down whenever they talk. Um, the challenge now is that Megalopolis has taken over a great deal of Arcadia. Mm-hmm. Um, and now the younger people and everybody who, who doesn't want that is pushing back. And how are they going to push back? Because a revolution to revolt is just to enhance the power of what you're revolting against because you are just giving it energy. So they know that and they know they're weaker. So what are they going to do? They have to evolve. And one of the big issues is, is Pavo Vale, my monster, who is now the emperor of Arcadia, but who is suffering in the same way that Frankenstein's monster suffered because he really does want to be human. But he's been, he's been engineered to be everything that is not human. He's been engineered to have no compassion. He's been engineered to have no love. He's been engineered not to care about the weak. And yet he yearns for it. How that's going to play out, I don't know. Um, but I'm going to be fascinated to see. It's going to be a lot of fun to write. Yeah, he was not a sympathetic uh, character in this book, but not, not yet. No, really? <laughs> so, yeah, but, well, he but was if supposed you made, to not But if be. you made Aspirin Grayling into a more or less sympathetic character, anything could happen with Pavo Vale. And Aspirin Grayling became sympathetic because of his tremendous love for Devendra Vale, even though mm-hmm. he overrode it at every opportunity because he thought overriding it was what he should do mm-hmm. to be successful. All right. Well, I'm intrigued by this idea that resistance only fuels that you are, which you are resisting against, and that resistance has to have a new meaning. I'm thinking of asking Mike to change the resist um, uh-huh. image and uh-huh. have it say persist underneath uh-huh. okay. for the next book. But I'll talk to him and see what he thinks. Oh, yeah. That's a, yeah. I like it. That's a good idea, indeed. So, any. Any other, well, can you tell us a little bit about where you're, I know we're, we're here in Ashland, so people are um, probably not going to follow you on the <laughs> book trail, but if people are traveling or have friends in other places where you're appearing in Colorado this I'm weekend? I'm going to be at Book Bar. I'm going to launch the book. The book pubs next Tuesday, but I'm launching it at Book Bar in Denver, mm-hmm. um, which is the most fantastic bookstore. Um, serving two of my favorite things, independent books and wine. So wow. uh, I'm going to do... Nice. Oh, I love I love Book Bar. I, I go there for all of the books. Um, on Monday, I, it's not a book-related thing, but thematically it's very related. I produced two documentaries for Channel 4 in England years ago, in 1999 and 2000, and we're going to talk about the differences between the two documentaries and how they really, they really embody 
the two different mm-hmm. centuries, in fact, uh, at the IFS, at the International Film Series on the campus of CU Boulder. And then okay. Tuesday, I am going to be at Inkberry Books in a little suburb of Boulder called Niwot, which is a brand new indie bookstore, also wonderful, run by a couple of wonderful guys. Um, I'm going to be at Powell's in Portland in October, um, and then I'll have an interview with your sister station, Kebu, that morning. Okay. Like I was do I love them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, I'm, I'm going to try to put something together at Bloomsbury at some point, because okay. it'd be nice to actually I... hang out with my <laughs> friends. <laughs> Sounds good indeed. Yeah. All right. Well, that brings us to a close here for this month's edition. Uh, next month in September, we'll, our guest will be Sean McEnroe, who is a professor of history at SOU, and he will talk about his work on early settlers and early societies in Latin America. That's an interesting parallel, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> so, All of them are. Literary yeah. Ashland, go, go, go. Uh, yeah. So until then, we all bid you farewell and good words to you. Right. See you next month.